From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. everybody to another edition of are you not entertained joining me as always to entertain you no doubt are my two oppos here first of all the great and good giles morgan giles how are you mate Ron, it's so lovely to see you in red today it's just beautiful you just broke you just woken up my whole day with the vibrancy of your top well, can I tell you, we should tell the listeners, that I, I haven't been headbutted by Roger and I'm bleeding from the nose. This is just a sweatshirt I'm wearing. Talking of which, Roger Mitchell is also here. Roger, hi, mate. I am. I am. I'm, I'm in good form. Um, I'm looking a lot warmer than you two are. You look bloody freezing. What's going on no, there? I, you, no, you know, I, I, I'm one of these freaky people that likes the house to be cold. And even though it's warm outside. So it's, it's 80 degrees here. But Oi, Rog, why are you looking so else. shaggy? Is the barbers all gone on strike in Italy or something? Because you are looking, no, very, you're looking like as a mad professor. Is this because you're sort of now people are coming to you looking for the sort of golden bullet in the sports industry? You're going for the sort of <laughs> intellectual wild man look. Well, I think, I think that's the, the thing Doc these Brown days. Look. Yeah, I think you've got Doc to go Brown. for that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what it is. Is that the no. flux capacitor of sport? <laughs> <laughs> All good, all good here, a uh, lovely day here, and uh, the sports industry continues to bounce off the walls. Yes, absolutely right. And we will be talking about one particular aspect of that today with our guest, who will be joining us shortly. Now, Giles, why don't you let the lovely listeners know who we are about to have a chat with? Yeah, our guest this week um, is a Canadian um, by the name of Keith Pelly, who um, is the Chief Executive officer of the European tour, I guess an American speak would be the commissioner. It's kind of interesting. He, he's, he's very much a Canadian and, and um, he's owner of probably more coloured frames of glasses, spectacles, than Dame Edna Everidge. And I, I really mean that. I, I, I think I've met him probably 40 times and never <laughs> seen the same, the same frame at the same time. I think um, I think Christopher Biggins will have a dog in that hunt, but <laughs> <laughs> he's not coming on the big interview. Um, but he's definitely Pelly, not. Pelly came roaring into the European tour. I think in around about 2015 when I got to know him, and with more, I guess, more energy and creativity and willingness to experiment with the game than golf had ever been used to in its probably 150, 170 year history of uh, uh, at any level which of course didn't immediately endear him to every blazer no. but my god he was brave and he talked it up and he talked a big game and in that time a lot of the changes that he talked about and flagged up have happened and we have seen innovation upon innovation from things like the new rolex series um I think the most brilliant digital content that any rights holder has produced in terms of just getting stuff out there to try and widen the appeal of a, of a sport. And he's led a merger or a strategic alliance or whatever you want to call it with the big brother, you know, the 600 pound gorilla room, which, which was, is the PGA tour. So he's done an awful lot. He's wild. Um, and I think we should bring him on. Well, let's just do that. And let's welcome Keith Pelley to the big interview. 
Keith, a very warm welcome to the big interview. It's superb that you could join us. I know you've had a very, very hectic few days traveling all over the world. I have one question. I've known you for, for, for a long time and you had a, a big career, particularly in the media industry. Why on earth in 2015 did you decide to go into the fractured, splintered political world of international golf? Why golf? Why golf? Uh, well, I think it was a combination of, I remember the first time they called and I, I said, no, I'm not interested because I was quite happy in Toronto. And the second time I said, where, where exactly is it? And I went, they said Wentworth. And I went, mm, Wentworth. And I looked, I went, ooh, that looks pretty nice. I said, <laughs> well, give me 24 hours. And that night I was out at a pub, ironically, uh, with my wife on date night, which we do. And uh, she looked at me and said, let's go. And I said, well, what do you mean let's go? She said, if, if life's about adventures, let's go on an epic adventure. And I said, the film. Oh, you, you really want to give everything, you know, where we just built this place on a lake and, you know, our boy is happy and our daughter's happy. She goes, no, she goes, let's, let's have fun. We'll travel around the world. And, and so I called them back. I've always loved golf. No idea what I was getting myself into from a golf perspective. Cause I'd never been in professional golf before, but uh, we're, uh, we're here. And this, this, Giles, to be totally honest, and people have asked me this so many times over the last year, is I've done my five years now because I'm six years into it. So where am I going next? And to be honest with you, my wife keeps telling me, you're loving it. I love it. I love the game. And we love London and we love Europe. So nowhere right now. I just want to check here for clarification. You had the two calls to you in Toronto. I'm guessing the first one came in around... June or July, but the second one came in December or January, based on your <laughs> That's clever. That's very, that's very clever. There's no, there's no doubt. If they called in June or July, yeah, that's, that's I will right. go with that. That's good. I like yeah. that. Okay. So, Keith, going back a bit, I remember meeting you in my, in my old role, and we, we spent a lot of time together getting to know each other. So you're persuaded over to, to live in the leafy so confines of Surrey in a lovely office there in, in, in Virginia Water. And I'm interested, when you arrived, you arrived like a Canadian whirlwind. You came with ideas, you came with energy, which maybe wasn't necessarily what you would put with, with the golf hierarchy as was in, in those days. You came with your ideas, you came from media, very fast moving world, particularly with technology moving uh, media so quickly. Did you find a, a sort of a moment of sort of deacceleration where you came in with that sense of purpose and energy only to be met with a sort of wall of sort of slow down? Or did you find immediately that your pace people were keeping up with? I just wonder, because you one would come in with energy and you certainly would amongst most men. But I wonder if you then found a moment of, oh God, it's not like the media world at all. Or, or was it different? The board, when, when they came in and talked to me first, wanted change. Let's, let's be honest, change is hard. The Harvard Business School wrote in 2012 that less than 10% of people that have a heart attack or bypass surgery make a major modification to their diet. And the reason being is change is hard. And change is very hard in an established environment like professional golf that is fractured with so many different organizations and so many different administrators. And sport, where which generates passion beyond comprehension, has people that have strong opinions. So coming in and, and making revolutionary change in a short time was difficult because change is hard. 
And we were able to make a lot of different, I guess, small wins in the short term. Uh, but we're still, in my opinion, uh, still a ways away. And like I said, we've made monumental strides in the way that we approach the game and the culture that we've tried to create. You even take a look at something as small as this concept of hoodies or small as something like uh, shorts in practice rounds. Those are little tiny wins, but it all helps in building the, the, the culture of the game that we're more inclusive than we once were. But we still have a ways to go. And now I think with, with the alliance that we've created with the PGA Tour, that will allow us to be less fractured and make those changes that we can then, I guess, almost mandate throughout the professional game, which I still think needs some serious modification. And I also believe that all the golf clubs, because I, I preach it all the time, have to continue to open their doors and be more inclusive. And, and you start to see golf clubs allowing jeans and no longer the high socks. But I'll tell you, you even take that one little story, gents, about the hoodies. You know, when Terrell Hatton wore a hoodie in 2020 here at BMW, I got a plethora of emails and letters from people saying, how possibly can we let hoodies be worn in golf? It takes away from the integrity. And every single one of those notes I wrote back and every single uh, email I wrote back saying it is the future of the game. And if you think about what happened this year at the Ryder Cup when Justin Thomas and all the U.S. players came out on day one with with the uh, the hoodies. It was the number one selling item yeah. uh, in the uh, in the pro shop, and they sold out, and they couldn't get more stock in. They were all gone by the weekend. So it's um, it's a mindset. This is about entertainment. This is about fun. This is what people do for their enjoyment, and we have to take it less serious. That's my that's my opinion. Let me ask you, and it's fascinating, you know, the, the hoodies, the shorts, I think anyone that's that's played golf for a long time like I have and has been around the game, you definitely notice those little things. So most people will go, oh, they're wearing shorts, so what? Who cares? But you do notice it, and it is a strangely big deal for, for someone who's been around the game for a long time to see that. But there's a very delicate balancing act here because, and this is something we go back and forward on the, on this show all the time, is this this desire and this need to move forward and to engage a younger audience that have completely different tastes in terms of how long their attention span lasts, how, how they want to play games. But golf, unlike so many other games, has such a rich tradition. And part of that tradition are the rules and the etiquette and the, the fact that it's so polite, for want of a better term. How do you balance that with the need to bring it forward and yet maintain a really strong tie to its past? Well, I, I think, and if, if you look at it from the pure professional game, Grant, the 72-hole tournament will always be part of it. And the 72-hole tournament will always be in the majors and in the big tournaments. And that that is the tradition. So I am all about the tradition. But at the same time, we have to understand that that tradition over the next 50 to 100 years is going to be tougher to maintain and grow at the same time. I had this, this is a real interesting debate with this gentleman this weekend who's a Mormon. And we had this conversation about the church. And I said, the reality is today's youth are having a more difficult time going to church services. And it, we just had this philosophy conversation. I said, the reason being is a church service usually has a, a very formal dress code and it is 
an hour or an hour and a half on Sundays. And I said, with the saturation of content and the unlimited choices that today's youth have, dressing up on a Sunday and going for 90 minutes is something that is going to be very difficult to maintain over the years. And it's similar. If golf wasn't to relax some of their rules, and if we weren't looking to change some of the opportunities where we can play the game in a quicker manner. And if we weren't looking at something like golf sixes, where we can play in an hour and an hour and a half, and we can play in a relaxed environment, and people can get to love and understand the game. However, still, at every single club, you're still going to have that match play that will be formal. So I think it is a delicate balance. But I think the pendulum hasn't swung enough to the other way yet. Right? We're still too far on this side. We're too far formal. We need to move over to this side, and then the balance will be there. So it's keeping the tradition, keeping the integrity, but having the wherewithal to not be afraid to try something different. Did the, did the Mormon gentleman suggest perhaps players were allowed to have three or four caddies? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. No, just, it's Mormon, my friend. It's Mormon. Okay. okay. It's fascinating because I think you know. I think when you when you play the game, it's very easy to think that those responsible for the stewardship of it are out of touch. And one of the the beauties of having these conversations that we've had over the last number of years is to have the chance to talk to guys like you who are in those positions and realize no, these guys are absolutely not out of touch. They really do understand this, and the game is in safe hands because they realize the importance of that tradition. But they're still trying to drag this thing, kicking and screaming almost into the twenty first century. No, I, I think if you if you look at all of the gatekeepers right now of the professional game and the amateur game, you look at the likes of Martin Slumbers and you look at, at Mike Wan, who's running the USGA, you know, both of them are very rich in the history of the game and understand yeah. it and appreciate it. But at the same time, they're very uh, modern forward thinkers and they're they're running the amateur side of the game. And we as the gatekeepers of the professional game need to actually provide the way that we can uh, get people interested in the game. And that is by, uh, by showcasing our stars in a completely different light. And that's why we have focused so hard on our, our social content and tried to make it as entertaining as possible and as creative as we possibly could be and not be afraid to, to push the limits. So I, I'm not worried ever about keeping the, the traditions of the game and the integrity of the game. But if we don't modify it, and if we don't make changes to it and we don't understand what today's youth uh, wants and the different, the different generations, then we'll fall behind. And at the same time, that, that would be a real shame because I think there is not a better game as far as inclusivity than golf where you can play with anybody at any age and the handicap system allows you to be competitive. Yeah. I think for the younger generation, it teaches you. I think, Grant, you just you mentioned it. It teaches you life skill. It teaches you discipline. It teaches you emotional control. You know, all of that or lack thereof. But it's uh, it's an incredible game that we need to celebrate. But that doesn't mean we don't need to modify. And modify as opposed to wholesale changes is something fundamentally different. Yeah. Let's probe that a little bit. Um, we, we on this podcast often use this phrase revolution or evolution, which I think is the core of this. You know, we all know we're dealing with, you know, the innovators dilemma about how you keep your traditional product, but uh, make fr- future proof the rest of your business. I heard a, a golf podcast, one of the, the popular ones uh, the other day where 
the guy on it was saying, oh, you know, the problem, these people here, and I think he actually mentioned you. He said, you know, the problem with these people is, you know, they, they come out with phrases like, I watch what my kids are consuming and I take lessons from that. Now, yeah. I, I agree with you, double, treble, four times, that whole thing. But I want to ask you, Keith, how, how do you, because I, I also came into sport from kind of the entertainment industry, how do you keep your patience? How do you keep your patience with the number of times you have to bite your tongue, the number of times you smile politely and still make progress? I found that personally very, very difficult. <laughs> oh, um, how do I do with that, Giles? Oh, you smile and then you yeah. cuss and you probably cuss under your breath. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I think... Um, I think you just have to be persistent and you just have to, uh, you, you can't get frustrated because if you, if you understand how tough change is, people don't like change. And if you've been doing something for the same thing in the same way for so many years, and now you want to change it, it's, it's difficult, but I would definitely um, debate with that individual that says that we look at today's youth as our key focus group. Cause you have to, I'm 57 years old. I'm not the future of the game. The future of the game is my 18-year-old. Exactly. Uh, and 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 if you if you don't understand what the Gen Zs are doing, if you don't understand that, then you can't make proper decisions as an organization. Every single organization in not only in sport uh, should have a, a, an internal focus group made up of everybody under 20. You know, it's interesting how many times that we've pulled those people together. How many times we pull is 17, 18 year olds in a, in a room and have conversations with them. What do you think about this, this, and this and that? And I'll say this to my chairman, my chairman is 74 years old and he'll say, wow, we shouldn't be doing that. And I said, you're 74 years old. I said, I'm 57 years old. I said, the key television demo is 18 to 49. We're not even in that demo. Yeah, that's that's the saleable demo on television, which is the number one generating revenue generator for for sports. And we're not even in that demo. So if you don't recognize that and you don't listen to the other demographics, then you've got no chance of improving your product. That, you know, this this is just music to my ears. And, and as Grant says, it's great to hear you say this. Uh, but let's ask a difficult question along those lines. It is undoubtedly the case that the 18-year-olds, even younger, what they call the beef, the memes, the whole Bryce and Brooks thing, they absolutely love it, gets them going. They, they share all these uh, clips and everything like that. And then, you know, if you follow that route, you end up with uh, Bryson and Brooks on, you know, some kind of what would be called by the traditionalists an artificial uh, tournament made for TV just for the money. I personally believe that's the future. I, I do think the majors will remain 72, like you said. But how do you get the golf community, most of them which are above 50, to understand that they need to embrace this rather than look down their nose well, I think I think you just have to reiterate it over and over and over again. And you have to look at the television ratings and you have to look at social media and how it's growing. And and one of the concerns we have is if you take a look at 
and I had this conversation last week because Gareth Bale was coming to uh, the Open to Spagna. And if you take a look at Gareth Bale's social attraction and you take a look at somebody like Niall Horan, who's involved in our game, and you take a look at both of their Instagram, Twitter accounts and how many followers they have, and then you look at the professional golfers and you just go all the way down from Patrick Cantley, Xander Sheffley, Bryson Brooks to Rory, you add them all up together then they're not even remotely the size of Niall Horn. And so that's well, a challenge. That's a challenge. So as a result, we need to focus more on these young personalities and how we communicate to them on social and working with them individually. We haven't fully reached today's youth the way that we need to in our game. So we're still appeasing very much the 50-plus demo. And we have to be not afraid to upset them a little bit. And that's a good, a good example is the hoodies is we're not, we weren't afraid to upset them. And I can tell you one other story. I don't know if you've seen Eric Van Ruin, Eric Van Ruin. Trousers. The, don't, don't get me started. <laughs> the trousers. Have you seen them? <laughs> you know, you can see, you can see his ankles, right? Three years ago, another player came to play the BMW PGA championship and wore those same pants in a practice round. And I got three or four of the players that said, you can't let them wear it during the, the, the tournament. So I didn't at that point. And I went, okay, okay, we, we, we won't. He was an American that was coming over. This time I said, no chance. He can wear them, not a problem. Eric Van Ruin can wear those pants every day of the week. And once again, I've gotten some, some calls because you can see his, see his ankles. But it's, it's all part of just modernizing the game. And I don't think, Grant, that's pushing it too far the other way. No, I, I, my, my, my objection was nothing to do with golf. It was pure fashion objection. I mean, I just, I just thought it looked awful. I don't care if you're on a golf course or walking down the street. I just thought it was terrible. So, <laughs> Keith, you, you're a modernist. You were brought in to be a modernist, and you've certainly been that. One of the things I kind of perceived in, in the time that there was a 12-year time when I was involved in the, in, in the game of golf at, at sort of international level, where it, it felt that there wasn't Kumbaya between the tours or the different governing bodies. And certainly you wouldn't invent golf in terms of the factions that, that existed historically, but that's what you inherited. You came in, you are a modernist. You've been talking the, the, the game of modernity and of moving forward a lot. I get the sense, but this is outsider looking in, that there has been a great step change, as you say, with people in the governing bodies who are now taking a much more enlightened view. Would you say that there is Kumbaya? Would you say that one of the successes that golf's had, I know people have said that COVID, golf has had a inverted commas, good COVID in terms of getting participation and interest levels up and being able to stage tournaments. But would you say when you revise back and you look back on your career, that it's been the change of personnel at the top of the game that has allowed more change? Or is that just my perception? Um, well, I, I'm, I'm a big supporter of change in every possible way, but not just on the professional game and the amateur game as well. Like I'll constantly preach to any club manager I ever talk to. I'll always ask them, what is your disability strategy? What are you doing for inclusivity? What's your, your strategy for kids under 14? What's your female strategy? You know, we have the most inclusive game. How are you communicating the health benefits of our game? 10,000 steps is, is five miles. Our game is wonderful, yet 
we are so reluctant to talk so positively about it, which frustrates me. If I was to look back at my time in golf, it's still to, to come because we haven't gotten disability golf into the Olympics and there's not enough disability players playing at every golf club. And when we did the deal with the European Disabled Golf Association and we start bringing the top 10 players in the world rankings to our events, and you've got these players playing in the same golf course as the pros, it is spectacular. And during the BMW PGA Championship, a couple weeks back, uh, Jay Monahan, the commissioner of the PGA Tour, came over and, and he said, he goes, you know, is there any chance we can sneak away to play Sunningdale? And I said, absolutely, we can. So I, I called the, the chairman, Roger Devlin, who was, who was great to arrange it. And I brought a fourth. And who I brought was a gentleman by the name of Brendan Lawler. Brendan Lawler is the number one world disabled golfer. And he suffers from, I, I can't pronounce it, but it is... Uh, uh, his his limbs were were uh, were not able to grow shortly after birth. So he's only I believe he is uh, three foot eight. He's a little person, and he's unbelievable. And he is uh, a plus one. He shot you know from the oh, wow. Uh, yeah, he, he shot well. He shot seventy. He's seventy three that day, uh, and he played two years ago in Scotland. The same tee boxes as as the pros. And he shot 72 in the final round and won the the inaugural Disabled Golf uh, Tournament in Scotland. And he beat eight pros straight up. And people don't know about this. Everybody that's listening, go on and, and take a look at Brendan Lawler. Look at how our game is so in tuned to disabled people. And anybody with any disability uh, can play this game. And with the handicap system, they can play it with and compete with an able-bodied person. But nobody can, but no, no, that's, that's an advantage that our sport has that other sports don't have. You can't get on the court and play with, with Roger Federer. You can't, you, no. can't, you can't play on the same basketball court as LeBron James, but you can in golf. And so, so it's these type of things that we need to celebrate in our game. You know, how does our game help you from a physical health perspective and also from a mental health side? If the studies around dementia and Alzheimer's, and it will come in golf, is it's all about keeping the mind active. Well, for four hours, your mind is ridiculously active and focused in the world of golf. So there yeah. will be a, a study that the, the RNA are working on regarding the mental health benefits of golf. And I think that's that's something else that we need to shout from the rooftop. You guys, you guys love our game. You know, we it's it's we've we've got to celebrate and be proud of how unique our game is in so many different ways. I've got a question for you. You've played in, I would imagine now, a lot of pro ams. Yes. What's the worst and most embarrassing moment you've had on a tee box? I know you're a good golfer, but you must have had a shocker where you've been with the world number one and just absolutely slapped one into the cabbage. Have you had that moment? Oh, you know, well, you know, uh, listen, just I played really well last in the in the BMW PGA Championship. I played played pretty well. I played with Billy Horschel and uh, I was playing very well. And they got to the 17th hole. And I know Lee Westwood very, very well. I have no idea why but lee westwood came up and he said come on i gotta see you i gotta see you stripe it right here i played well all day and it, it looked like i was like a 40 handicap i hit it straight left and i went 
And Billy Horschel looks at me and goes, what was that? I went, I have no idea. And Lee just looks at me and just goes, <laughs> absolutely awful. Yeah, so that was pretty embarrassing. Yeah, yeah. Good. Keith, <laughs> let me let me let me go back to this idea of inclusivity because I, I think it's something. Again, it's, a, it's another topic that we've kicked around on this podcast numerous times, and that is male and female joint competitions. You know, we had, we had the the good fortune last month to see the Solheim Cup and the Ryder Cup close enough together that the memory of the former was still fresh in the mind when we watched the latter. And if there's anything that lends itself to the perfect blending of male and female sports, it would be a rider slash Solheim cup of some sort. I mean, it's, it's, it's perfect. Uh, is that something, I mean, I'm sure it's something that must've been talked about. Is it a, a long way away from happening or, or is there that something that's credibly going to happen in the not too distant future? Do you think? Well, first of, first of all, I would, I would say that the Solheim cup and the Ryder cup are, are magical and, and you never want to take something that's so successful in a formula that is so great and you know you you will always try to improve it but i don't think that needs a full overhaul so there no, will always no, 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 fight, no. right however in addition grant yeah yes yeah. we've had conversations about that absolutely what we are talking about right now with the pga tour is is creating uh, something I'll, I'll say something special post fedex that allows a, a different vibe for our game and perhaps you know, addresses what we've been talking about earlier that has kind of a, a different feel to it, hopefully attract a different type of audience, get people involved in it. If you take a look at the successes uh, in cricket in the, um, what was it, the the 100, right? Yep. Yeah, and, and did you did you hear that stat? That the stat, it was, I think it was 59% of the people that watched it on Sky have never been to a cricket match. That's phenomenal. Like, it's, yeah. it's a... It's a phenomenal statistic. So, you know, we're trying to create something special right now that will hopefully allow our audience base to be created by generating some interest and creating a new interest in a new audience in our game. Having said that, to answer your question, Grant, directly, we've had a number of conversations about it. And I think a team event with men and women will work and it will happen. Yeah, I, I think it would be absolutely fantastic for everybody to watch that. I mean, yeah, I, I think, I think yeah, it's it funny for, for us, for us, so, you know, Saturday, Sunday morning hackers watching the women. And, and look, you, right now you have this extraordinary time for golf where you don't just have Tiger Woods and a bunch of other decent golfers. You know, on the on the men's tour, you've got probably a dozen top, top class golfers who are winning week in and week out. The women's tour seems to me to never have been so stacked in terms of depth from mm -hmm. one through 20 in the world and, and European tour the same. I mean, the European tour, we, we've got so many phenomenal world-class players. Yeah. It's such a sweet spot for golf and you kind of sit back as a, as a golfer and a fan of the game and just rub your hands at the possibilities of, of what you guys could do. And you, know, you touched earlier on about the social media stuff you've been doing. And, you know, that, to me, as, as kind of throwaway as it is, I think the way you've showcased the personalities, particularly of the guys on the European tour, you know, Eddie Pepperell, who's a, who's a friend of mine and a friend of the show, and the Matt Wallaces of the world, and you know, these guys that have not only have extraordinary talented golfers, but have great sense of humor, great personalities. I mean, it's such a fantastic time to be where you are in the game and have these tools to work with. 
Well, in order in order for your social to be successful, you have to have the right culture and you have to have a creative culture and you have to have the trust of the players and the players trust us now and they're they're open for it. They want to be part of our social and they want to be part of any of the content that we create because we know that it characterizes them in a good light and it helps with their individual brands. You know, and another one that's really it's it's interesting is is fantasy and gaming. We started just prior to the pandemic in e-tour. Listen, as I said, I'm 57, and, and these were some of the <laughs> some of the uh, young guys in the office said we need it. We need to create an e-tour. So we partnered with Top Golf, and they have this e-gaming platform. And so we now have 40, 50,000 people signing up playing e-gaming, and the top eight players play for 10,000 at the DP World. And it's called an e-tour. And just think where that can grow in the next five years. I looked yesterday, you know, somebody signs up every week. We have the fantasy game. And this, again, was created by some of the the young guys in our digital content department. And we had 25,000 people just signing up to play for 1,000 pounds this week for the Open Despania. So I, I think it is about the social and the different media platforms it's all about creating the right creative culture and we have to do that in spades uh, because that's the way to reach a different audience and the, the the more people that can touch our game the more people that can want to to go out and play it and, and i say that one of the best uh, inventions for our game has been top golf adventure golf yeah have you been roger Right. Yeah, yeah, we we yeah. T- we actually had we talked about it a lot. We had um, uh, one of the people from Top Golf on the show. It's an amazing it's product. Fabulous. It's incredible, but that's not tradition, Grant. That's not that's no, not no, no. that that isn't. But but that doesn't cross the line either. That's just a different form of it. So I I, I really think we have to hammer on this point: is everything that we're trying to do is never going to touch. You know, and and that, as you called it earlier, that delicate balance. We're never we're never going to cross the line, but in order for us to get to the point where more people appreciate the traditions of our game, they've got to experience it. And the only way to experience it is in, in a different form to begin with, because you're never going to start by playing an 18-hole match play. Right. Yeah, if you can get an eight and a ten-year-old to go to Top Golf. And then be interested and go play a par three and, and start playing six hole six holes and, and where it is fun and where it's enjoyable. And that's the future you, of it. You know, it's, it's funny. Keith, I'm a, a, a good friend of mine, just, just as an aside to that, a, a good friend of mine uh, out in California who's a phenomenally good golfer and his son, who's uh, I think five, five, six maybe, um, and a decent little golfer. And But he takes them out on the golf course. But they went to Pebble Beach and they played the little par three course there at pebble beach and it was the first time that his son realized he could play golf with his dad because the holes are all i think the longest ones 100 yards they were 50 yard holes or what have yeah. and they had a proper game of golf and he said he couldn't drag his son off this golf course because yeah. suddenly he was playing golf against his dad you know and and getting yeah. twos and threes on holes and it, it just he said it just changed his whole outlook well, it, yeah, I, I I think my boy felt the same way, and I felt the same with him until he started thumping me every week, and then and then it just, it, to be honest with you guys, it just wasn't as much fun. No, Keith, Keith, Keith let, let's let's come back a little bit to something you you mentioned there, fantasy, and, and fantasy is a very short leap into into betting. 
One of the things that that we've noticed on this podcast, I think ahead of most of others, is the influence of a media company like Barstool. Uh, And there was this wonderful clip on the Golf Channel a couple of weeks ago where these two old presenters, again, probably not under 50, were perplexed commenting uh, about how uh, Phil Nicholson at the tee box was interacting with this chap Riggs from Barstool. And they were saying, well, I don't understand it, but it all seems to revolve around this chap Riggs. And how are you going to manage to accept that, realise what I believe is the great job Barstool has done for the popularity of golf, but then when they drag everybody into betting on whether uh, somebody's going to hit it into the trees or not, you draw that line. We've talked on this whole podcast about where the line is. So how do you find that line in this particular case? We do real-time data and we collect every single shot now, and we are now licensing that data to the betting companies. Yeah, But but we we are very very firm on we will not allow any negative bets right we will not license any data if you, there's any negative bets it's just never going to happen so you're not going to be able to bet whether he hits it into the trees or makes a double or makes a bogey you'll be able to bet whether he'll be, make a birdie whether he'll make the putt whether he'll hit the green but there'll be no negative bets and when you talk about you talk about gaming and betting you can't talk about that without integrity so the, your integrity officer in your gaming component of your business is absolutely critical. If you take a look at sport and you, you take a look at what has happened in the National Football League, which has basically uh, become as big a sport as it is through gambling. And fantasy and gaming is something that is here to stay. And it's part of the game and it's something that we should embrace, but it's something that we need to have uh, proper integrity with. So there will be no negative uh, opportunities to bet at the European Tour. That's, I think that's really great to hear. First time I've heard that. So, so thanks for that. Uh, I'm going to just stay on this, but slightly to the, to the left in terms of the questioning. Sport, the whole industry of sport now finds itself um, um, as content in, in the streaming wars. And, and obviously you, you're a world-class media executive. I, I'd like to you know, ask you to comment on what you, what you think about all of that by asking you a question from your past life. The deal that you did with the NHL, uh, which was, I think, 12 years long, who do you think got the best deal out of that, if you look at it now? Well, I think, I think it, it, it took the network to... Uh... Uh, the Sportsnet now, if you take a look at their chairman, the chairman of the board, Edward Rogers, who claims that it's the uh, it's it's the deal that not only made Sportsnet number one, but it, it drove the revenue uh, because at the end, product is still king. And the, the, the reality with that particular deal was it was multiple platforms. It was all platforms. In fact, there was a clause in the contract that stipulated that if a new product or a new platform was created within the 12 years, the rights would automatically revert to the uh, to the broadcaster. So you no longer can, can buy just linear rights. You need to buy uh, multi-platform rights in order to really maximize the revenue and, and, and control the distribution. I think if you take a look at what, what has transpired with the PGA Tour deal in, in the United States, they've done a brilliant deal because they brought them all in. They brought NBC, CBS, ABC, ESPN, Discovery. So everybody is actually now 
really acting as a promoter for the game and for the PGA Tour through the rights distribution that the PGA Tour has done. Very, very, very intelligent. I would answer that question, Roger, that both, I'd say the National Hockey League uh, uh, got maximum exposure in Canada, and Rogers has uh, has certainly uh, been awarded with uh, now the number one sports network by far over, uh, over Bell. Just switching tacks a little bit, the Ryder Cup's been and gone and Europe's obviously in the past enjoyed quite a quite a successful time of it. And and and, and this year, uh, the Americans flex their, their muscles. I'm interested, not from a European perspective, but just more as you were talking about the general game of golf. Is it, it seemed to me that some of the, if this is the right word, behaviour of some of the American team was met by aghast comments by some members of the media, maybe many members of the public, maybe not many, I don't know. But it seems to me that 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 behaviour by some of the American team is much more akin to a younger generation and how they expect sports and competitive sports to be played, as opposed to the more traditional values of golf, which go way back. How do you navigate that as a as a governing body, both of you, both America and 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 Europe, in terms of wanting to show binary competition with people playing at the top of their absolute level, which comes with testosterone and desire to win, versus keeping the spirit of the game? I, 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 that's a good question. And Giles, I'd go back to what Grant said about a delicate balance. And first and foremost, what makes our our game great is the integrity, the level of sportsmanship that it exudes. And at time, at the Ryder Cup, both the fans and the players cross the line. And that's the delicate balance that that we're talking about. So I I think although uh, that barbaric, bombastic type of of, uh, atmosphere or behavior is perhaps celebrated or accepted by the younger generation, that doesn't necessarily make it right. And I think that we have to be careful. These players are still role models and they're role models for the younger generation. And I would just say, uh, you know, I haven't said this publicly, but you know, I, I don't want my 18 year old in a match that he's playing in university, downing a beer and crushing it on the first tee. And so, I think that's the delicate balance. And I think a lot of people would absolutely agree with that statement, which is it's great to see competition. It's great to see camaraderie. It's great to see teams winning and feeling that win. And yet there's that balance, which is don't be gauche. So I think your comments are probably supported, as always, um, in terms of common sense by probably the vast majority of, of golf fans, whatever their age. But, you know, you, you, you've talked about you've talked about the media and you've talked about how things are changing. I watched a podcast the other day with Max Homa and uh, I, I thought it was absolutely fascinating. And it took product placement to a whole new level because there were a couple of, of Bud Lights on the uh, on the on the desk where he was on. And then midway through it, he started drinking a Bud Light. And I just went, wow, the whole world has changed with podcasts and social media. And, you know, it, uh, it's, it's a long way away when from uh, in the 1970s when there were three channels that you turned on. You know, it's, it's, the content is everywhere. And so every single thing that happens now on the field of play can move to a social uh, environment. 
And so all of that that happened with Brooks and Dustin and everything that happened there in the Ryder Cup in the first tee became social and the audience became far greater. And that's where we just have to be very, very mindful of. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, back in the 70s, Brian Barnes on the European tour was was told he had to use a round ball marker. And so he used a half-drunk can of Heineken to mark his ball on the on the first tee. So that, so that stuff was going on you know, several really? decades ago. He did, yeah, yeah. Some great stories about that European tour in the in the seventies. Brian Barnes was uh, was quite the character. But um, so you Keith, think about uh, that, Grant. But you think about that now. If he if he did that now, yeah. Imagine how how quick that would go viral around the world. Yeah, yeah, go absolutely viral. right. Incredible. Yeah. The other delicate balance, which we haven't touched on yet, is technology. You know, and this is this is something that when we watch what Bryson's doing, you know, and I haven't met him. I I, I don't like the way personally he comes across, but I'm in awe of his golf and, and his dedication to sport and what he does. I think he's, what he's doing is absolutely phenomenal. But we are reaching that point where to not make some remarkably fantastic traditional courses obsolete to these guys there has to be a conversation about on the at the tour level at least not not on the amateur level I, i'm not going to trouble anybody with 350 yard drives but reining in the technology to make sure that these guys can't hit it 400 yards it, it, how serious is that being taken because we, we hear the players asked about it a lot and they kind of they wish wish either way but at the top levels how are those discussions going well, I, I think we're taking it very seriously. And we are uh, with the RNA and the USGA that are leading the project. And they're in the second phase of the of the research stage. So um, they will come back to the group and we will have significant dialogue about it. We all have very strong opinions on it. I'm trying not to, to give my opinions publicly, but we all have strong opinions on it. I would ask you guys a couple things. I'd ask you two questions because I'd be, I'd be interested. One is, do you feel that it is absolutely necessary and do you support bifurcation? Meaning, do you think it is important when you guys play that you have the opportunity to play with the same ball and the same driver as Bryson and Dustin so you can compare it directly to the pros? No, I, I absolutely no. don't. No, I, don't. I absolutely don't because I, because I know that they they play a different game. To, you know, Jack Nicholas, uh, was it Bobby Jones said about Jack Nicholas? You know, he plays a game with which I'm not familiar, and that's the. I think that's the same for us. It's it's. I love seeing these guys doing what they do, but I also like seeing them hit the odd four iron into a green instead of pitching wedges to par fives. You know what I mean? Okay, okay, I understand that, Grant. But okay, so now I always say that I played the white tee boxes here at at Wentworth the day after Alex Noren shot 62 to win in 2017 or so and he shot 62 in the rain yeah and I went out and played the 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 same tee boxes the same pin placements the next day and I went how on earth did he shoot 62 so the, the the amount of respect I had for him because he was playing the same technology I was yeah so now if he shot 60 69 or 70 but i can't quite compare if i'm playing different technology i can't quite compare can i it's not apples to apples comparison yeah, yeah, but i i take a different view is i think actually what you're saying i agree with which is the play i think the players everyone has to play the same thing but a bit like the, the tennis ball was depressurized to slow it down and it happened universally so if it's reduced for the amateur as well so what 
you, it's it's only it's only relative the distance, but I do think it's absolute sadness, and I say this as a Welshman, is that some of the great courses in the British Isles are not big enough to host major championships because they're not long enough because they just they haven't got the yardage when they should be, and then you get into the environmental argument, and there's a whole lot of arguments which kind of reflects this, but therefore surely it has to be reduced for all. I know there's the kind of size matters and all of that, but really, really. I don't know. Okay. okay. Just, it's an interesting debate. And and yeah, listen, no, we're going to be having this debate and we're going to be having this debate for, for a little while. So then the next question is, and, and uh, <laughs> I'd be interested, you know, Roger, you're from Scotland. And, and I always say that, that Scotland is the spiritual home of golf. They say America is the commercial home, but, but, you know, Scotland and the old course next year, we're all anticipating an unbelievable week at the Open Championship uh, at, at St. Andrews for the 150th anniversary of the Open. Now, is it okay if they drive five of the greens and shoot 58? No, for me. Day, and the Not second day, it might, the second day, the second day, it might be windy and they shoot 73. Because because the the rain's coming down and the wind is going, you know. But for the day that they've got the the nice weather um, and and they, they humiliate the course like that, I don't like that, Keith. I don't like that. It's it's it's, it's fair, Grant. You feel the same way? Well, I I, look, I first of all I have to apologise. There's noise outside because I am actually right here on a golf course, and there's something about golf. It's all the maintenance that goes on, all the noise is driving me mad. Yeah. The pollution. <laughs> I can't stand this game. But uh, look, I. I I, again, you know, I, I don't, it's not for me. It's not a case of humiliating the course, but I think it's the, the course was built to be played a certain way. And yes, technology evolves over time. But wait, look, if you get to the point where half the field can drive half the par fours, I think at that point you need to think about this and say, well, well what do we have here? Do, do we make them all par threes and make par? more of a challenge or, or the challenge it was meant to be I, I look and it's, it's such a great conversation okay uh, and you've obviously you, the, the way you're asking the questions you're way ahead of us in being able to kind yes. of push us into yes. other corners which i appreciate <laughs> but it, it's you know it, look, i go back to var in football and and they put var in football to get rid of the mistakes and then you realize once you've had a couple of seasons of var that the mistakes were what you spoke about in the pub afterwards having having that stuff to debate in the pub afterwards, the referee should have done this. Once you take that out, you kind of ruin a lot of the game for the fans. And so I think for the fans with this stuff, half of them are going to want to see everybody driving the green and having eagle putts left and right. And the other half are going to say, well, this is just making a mockery of the game. And, it, and I just, there's nowhere to go with it. It's, it's an impossible thing to, to talk I, about. There, there's, there's no doubt we're looking at it in all facets of of the research and what's good for the game and you know it, it'll be it'll be interesting it'll be well, let me offer you let me offer you one suggestion you to all the players on the first tee they pick a ball out of the starter's hands one of them's doctored and one of them's a genuine ball and and have at it get lucky God. <laughs> well that that, that you know, we haven't had that suggestion no, at I'm, our, I'm also, the next one will be a brainstorming session that's the first time that suggestion has come, Grant. Put Roger's name to it, please. You know, that comes from the school of thought that, that, that no idea. Yeah, that's, that's a horrendously... Yeah, except that one. A horrendously that one. bad idea, Grant. A horrendously bad idea. 
horrendous. But here, here's the, the question we'd like to finish up with, Keith, that uh, it really is the theme of, of our podcast, which is if governing bodies uh, struggle to adapt to the way they need to, then they will simply be replaced by challenger leagues. Um, I speak to you as a media guy that knows that, you know, that famous phrase, just follow the money. If you realise that uh, the eyeballs of the money follow, let's say, the top 10, the top 12 players and the rest of the players really aren't generating any value that can be commercialised, isn't a super league tournament or organisation for golf inevitable? Well, I would say a couple things. First of all, the unbelievable stories that happened on the European tour this year with Richard Brand and Marcus Armitage wouldn't have happened. Richard Bland has played brilliantly this year. And if all we were focusing on was the top players, then he wouldn't have had that opportunity, nor would Marcus Armitage. And there's a plethora of those stories. Uh, so that takes away from the magic of our game and the meritocracy that we have created both at the European tour and the PGA tour. My answer is Roger, there is a place for both. And as I said, we are talking about doing something special with the PGA tour. I think the consumer wants to see the best players playing in more tournaments more often. I think we got something pretty exciting to look forward to at the Genesis Scottish Open with the first co-sanctioned event ever with the PGA Tour and the European Tour. Uh, and I, I think that uh, the concept of a new league has done nothing more than bring the PGA Tour and the European Tour closer together and looking to modify and make some changes that is better for stakeholders, players, and most importantly, the consumers. Because as you said, engagement or eyeballs, engagement is is what I refer to engagement on social media or is, uh, is viewers on, uh, on linear or, or, or specialty television. Great answer. Keith, Keith it's, it's great to hear and, 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 particularly here in the UK, when we talk about, you know, the elite leagues or whatever, and we only have to say two words, Emma Redicanu, about stories in another yeah. sport, which came from nowhere that steal the headlines. Yeah. Um, you're absolutely right that the narrative of the unsung hero, the one that coming in from nowhere, is as important as, as, as the heavyweights. And I think from my point of view, and this isn't a surprise to me, but I hope to all our listeners, is that People can look at sports like golf and, and, and other of the traditional sports and think that the leaders are out of touch. And what is so heartening with speaking to people like you and Jay Monaghan and Guy Kinnings and a whole raft of people, Martin Slumbers, is that one of the oldest, most proud traditional games is now um, being led by innovators, people who are thinking about modernity. And from our point of view on the podcast, where we're here as agents just to challenge change but also just to try and take sport forward because we're all just fans of sport it's wonderful to hear your views and we are really genuinely very grateful that you could take the time particularly with a jet lag i suspect you're feeling for joining us on are you not entertained i, ca I can't remember being this exhausted yeah that's grown that's grown to be fair no, listen, he does that yeah, yeah just 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 listen we'll, we'll play 18 holes with me and roger that'll that'll teach you all about exhaustion hey Don't listen worry. anytime you guys want to want to play i've got a couple of hoodies for you that we can uh, uh, get you on the first team. <laughs> hoodies and right. shorts i'm partial okay? i'm partial here all you right. go okay thank you so that much was this, great. Was, this was a real was treat great. thoroughly enjoyed yeah. every second of it thanks for taking the time see you guys be good thank thank you, sir. Bye -bye. cheers now bye-bye
That was fantastic. Honestly, I, Keith single-handedly gave me more confidence in kind of the future of sport based on all the things, Rog, that we've debated back and forth. I think that anybody else I've spoken to, you know, he's clearly a guy who understands that that balance between between tradition and progress. And uh, it's it's hugely, hugely heartwarming to know that the game is in hands like that for me. Yeah, I would go. I would. I would agree with that completely. I, I, I would uh, say the same thing in a slightly different way. Being the arrogant so and so that I am, I think I could probably make a case for any sport to say that they've no role going forward. They're out of touch, and uh, they're not fit for purpose. And a challenger league starting with a fresh piece of paper would do better. I couldn't do it with him. I would lose. Yeah, and that's the best compliment I can give. Yeah, no, it was uh, that was absolutely absolutely fantastic. John, what are your thoughts? Well, it, for me, um, there's great validation because I I watched Keith um, come ascend to, to to the lofty position at the European Tour in 2015, and I heard him talk a lot. We spoke at conferences, we spoke at events, and he was talking a new language and and. The company I was working with there, obviously HSBC, was and still is a major uh, financier and investor in the sport. And his voice was quite a soul voice. And I didn't always feel at the time that it was universally being supported. Fast forward six years, I really do. And that the mood music is, is has shifted enormously. And like you say, Grant, what I'm excited about is this is a sport that is preparing with its eyes wide open for its future rather than wide shut. So he's a good guy, huge enthusiasm, and, and what yeah. a joy to have him on. No, and uh, as I say, that, I mean, golf is in such a sweet spot now, right from the, the, the administrators of the game, the rule-making bodies, down through the players, down to the fans. I mean, this, this, is, this could be a, it's a golden era of golf. There's, there's no two ways about it. Well, gents, uh, another... Hugely enjoyable conversation. I guess all that remains is, is, is to thank our guest, Keith Pelly, for taking the time fresh off a flight from Seoul. As you heard there, 24 hours in, in the air. That's uh, <laughs> I know how tired, tiring that is. And to thank, most importantly, you for listening to us. Uh, we appreciate you tuning in and, and supporting us every way we can. If you want to follow us, you can find us on Twitter. You'll find us at EntertainedR. You can follow me there, if you're not already, at TTMYGH. And you can follow me, Giles Morgan, at GilesMorgan71. I'd just like to thank Pump Jack DataWorks uh, for bringing that to you. Uh, they just came off a great week at Leaders, and I'm delighted for them. And if anybody still wants to follow me, you can follow me at RPM Como, as in the lake. As in the lake. Gentlemen, until next time.